This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So I feel like uh, I might need to knock a little rust off uh, my preaching. I haven't preached in a while, uh, unless you, my kids could probably say, yes, you have. Uh, but that's like, you know, living room preaching. Uh, there's a difference. And uh, it's been a, a wonderful little stretch of time for me personally. It's, and that doesn't mean it hasn't been difficult. When, you, when we finish up the training season, there is a lull that takes place And there is a vulnerability to sort of suck your thumb and and sort of take care of yourself. It's a a weird phenomenon. You can pour yourself out vigorously for Jesus and be very sharp spiritually. But then oftentimes it's like your body is looking for an excuse and it, it talks to you. It's sort of like now is the time. You ever had it? where you finish up a rough season and you actually tell your body, it's like, okay, well, if I was going to get sick, this would be the time. And then immediately you get sick, so your body collapses. And so I am always trying to be very sharp as I transition out of a, an intense season, not to go into a lull or a depression season. It's just very easy to do. And so the season has not been without battle as I've been focusing on, okay, God, how do you want us to lead this organization forward? How do you want us to move our family forward. I mean, we have all sorts of things that are stirring in our life and it's very exciting, but I need grace for it and I cannot do it in my own strength and I need to constantly remember that. And that's sort of what this uh, message is about. It's sort of a classic Ellerslie idea. We didn't come up with it, but we share it a lot at Ellerslie and that's the idea of God doing the work because all of us know that work needs to be done but we all have a tendency to dig in our own pockets to try and accomplish that work. And there's a certain kind of work that is a little more odd. Like if I say work, then you're usually thinking about evangelism and going out there and reaching the lost and building a ministry and, you know, hey, we're going to do something to show Christ in a a global sense. But this is a little more uh, close to home, I think, that I'm going to try and strike today. And it's been very, very important for me in this stretch. And that is the people for a part of our life that it, we need supernatural impetus and power to actually have a great marriage and to have great family relationships and to work together here in this body. And that almost sounds strange, even though you know it's true. Right? It's like, you know that, okay, yeah, we need supernatural power because apart from him, we can do nothing. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not that hard, is it? To do it right, it's not just hard, it's impossible. And the, the quicker we arrive at that conclusion, actually the better. But many of us struggle to arrive at that conclusion because, hey, we're not that bad at this. You know, I've got some natural talent in relationships, you know, and I can whip that out. And I can fool, you know, even myself for a season. But there are going to be situations in your life that are going to tax you beyond what your own capacity is able to overcome. And that's just what I would like to refresh in our midst. I'd just like us to remember our dependence upon God to do it. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his 
might. So battle-forged friendship. Uh, odd name maybe for this, but this stems, even I was laying in bed a few days ago and I was thinking about this particular idea. We had just had what probably, likely, is our final staff meeting where we're all together with Dan and Sandy and Grace. And uh, how do you put words to what that's like? Okay, that's just, that's hard for us because it's been Longer than 12 years. We've had the campus for 12 years, but we've had Dan and Sandy and Grace longer than 12 years because Ellers, that just happens to be when we got the campus. But it's been such a sweet, profound season. So to see Dan, Sandy, and Grace transitioning to Belize as missionaries is technically what we're about here. And so we're rejoicing and we're excited for them. They're very uh, excited for what's ahead of them. But it's difficult when you bond at that level, when you have that type of a knittedness. And as a result, as we've oftentimes said, at the end of every semester, we want it to be painful to say goodbye to our students. Otherwise, we feel that we have failed to effectively love the body. When you love, there is pain. It is built into the experience, which is why some people that have had extreme pain in their life because of loss have a tendency to struggle with loving, with abandon, because they don't want to experience pain again. But technically, to love well is to make yourself vulnerable to extreme pain, the pain of separation, the pain of loss. And so it's a good pain, though, not a bad pain. And I'm sort of feeling that pain right now. Uh, and Sandy and I were going and dealing with an AT&T matter uh, the other day. And that was just very special, uh, Sandy, just reminiscing and sharing that time. And it's a, it's, a, it's a friendship that we have, but to call it just a friendship is some, somewhat of a, it's like demeaning to what it really is. It's, you have to have a better word than friendship because other people have friendships, but this is something different. And that's where you get my title. It's a battle forged friendship. When you share battle with someone, you've, you've oftentimes heard of the, the men that are in war and they're in a trench together, uh, or in their, they're in a foxhole in Nam uh, together, and then they're lifelong buddies. Even though they never really talk, they just sort of hang out with each other and they're like, nod. It's like, mm -hmm, I understand you. You understand me. They shared something. And it's something that was so acutely challenging that it bonds whoever goes through it together. And when we talk about the fellowship of his sufferings, I think it's that concept. When you share and you suffer alongside of someone, it knits you at a different level. Now, it's interesting because you can suffer alongside someone and actually have a breaking of relationship through that suffering too. I, I, when Leslie and I were first married, we were sort of scared of having kids. Uh, and so Leslie, for I want to say for my birthday, it could have been for Christmas, but she got me two budgie birds. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Australian budgies. But, uh, and I remember having sort of a panic attack when the lady at the pet store said, yeah, and they live like, you know, 25 years. or I don't remember what it was. It was a huge, long period of time. And I'm like, <gasps> uh, you know, so I felt like I had kids all of a sudden. And so these budgies uh, were in our in the kitchen, and every time, and they loved each other. You know, they were they were little lovebirds, and they they hung out with each other. And uh, whenever you would vacuum uh, around, because they made a little mess too, and so we'd come around and vacuum. That vacuum, that trauma, that suffering, caused them to peck at each other. 
And it was interesting, but Leslie and I noted that right in the very beginning of our marriage that that's exactly what would happen to us when a vacuum would be at the bottom of our cage. When we had a noise that disturbed us, we would, as weird as this is, you'd start pecking at each other. What a strange thing to do. They're in this together. And so you could either start pecking at each other or bond closer. And so one of the things Leslie and I decided right in the very beginning of our marriage is that we don't really want to be like the budgies. We want to be the way God intended us to be, and that is to draw closer through suffering and draw closer through trial as opposed to turn against each other in trial. And so that's just sort of an underlayment. But to do that, you still need something beyond what you have. And I think for all of us, I mean, as the younger people in here, if you could catch that from the youngest point in your life to say, I can't actually live out this grand calling, but technically God can in and through me. So one of the phrases that we use at Ellerslie a lot is, I can't, but he can. I can't do these things, but he can. And you could say, well, good for him, (laughs) but he desires to do it in and through me. So even though this body apart from God can't pull it off, this body indwelled by God is perfectly capable of doing it. And that is a miracle. It's known as the gospel, is that God desires to invade this body and live in it and take these hands and make them do things that Eric Ludy on his own couldn't do with them. To take these eyes and make them do things that these eyes apart from God could never do. See things that apart from God they could never see. Take this tongue and cause it to speak things that apart from God could never be spoken. But with God indwelling me, this tongue could be set on fire by the fire of heaven and speak words that would change the world around me. That's Christianity. And when it comes to people relationships, marriage, that's a good one. There's a few of you in here that are married, right? And you know very well how easy it is to have marriages falter and how hard it is to strengthen them. It's, it's an uphill battle. Apart from God, marriages can't really hold together unless you just form some kind of business relationship. That's how you can sustain it. You just sort of have to come up with some things for the kids. You know. However, God didn't design it to just be for the kids. He designed it to be for him. And as a result, it needs something beyond human ability. It needs divine power. And when it comes to family relationships, you need something more than just good parenting skill. You actually need God power. When it comes to loving the body of Christ, you actually can't just use your own human, you know, charisma. You need God power to do it. There are moments where your own human charisma can buy you time. However, there are going to be circumstances in the body that will try that and prove that it is inadequate for the task. So what we're after is something that bonds us closer to one another as opposed to causes us to peck at each other. And the best place to test that, because right now in this room, we all get along pretty well. We don't really have rifts in this room. We walked through COVID-19. Is that what it's called? It sounded funny. I was going to call it COVID-2020. But, and that would have been accurate. But then we have COVID-2021. And who knows? We might have COVID-2022. 2020. Is that right? Yeah, I'm saying that correct. Uh, in other words, well, we could have COVID-2030 at this rate. But God forbid. Get thee behind me, Satan. Uh, <laughs> So, however, we walked through it as a body, as a local body, 
in a beautiful fashion. I think it brought us closer together. We didn't peck at each other through it. A lot of churches divided over that. For our body, we were brought closer. That doesn't mean that the next trial, the same thing happens. We have to labor to depend on God to handle each situation in accordance with his grace and not in accordance with our own human wisdom. A picture of the Ellerslie leadership team. Now, this, this is, might seem, for those of you that are on the Ellerslie leadership team, which includes Dan, Sandy, and Grace right now, this might be a little offensive at first, but just let me walk through it. Uh, so those are musk oxen. So if you're getting this via podcast, you're missing a really impressive, beautiful picture. Musk oxen, I can't, I, I, it's hard for me to say that they're beautiful creatures, okay? So when, when I say that one of those is Sandy up there, you see that, uh, those, uh, those white tresses uh, on uh, that one off to the right. I don't know if that's Sandy or if the one in the middle, because there's sort of this uh, bit of hair flopped over on the side there. But that middle one sort of looked like Dan, a little gray on top. Uh, and then maybe, I don't know if that's me or if that's Philip, Nathan, I'm not sure on the, on the left. But it's the concept of a musk oxen uh, phalanx. And the way that these creatures, and I've talked about this years ago at Ellerslie, but it's, it's very fascinating to me how when attacks come against them, how they ally together, instead of pecking at each other, they actually turn into each other's protectors. And as a result, even though they're not very attractive creatures, which is sort of uh, symbol, uh, symbolic to the world, right? We're not very attractive to the world, but it is very impressive. From drinking buddies to devil-defying buddies, the key change to relationship that the cross brings about. One of the things that many of us on the, the team at Ellerslie have noted is that we don't have the same sort of relationships that many people in the world have. You know those chummy relationships, the buddy relationships, like, hey, let's go and watch the game together. Uh, we don't have that. And it's sort of a strange thing. You could feel bad for us, right? It's like, oh, I really feel bad for Eric that he doesn't have a lot of just, I have a ton of friends, right? And I have a lot of people that I love to hang out with. However, those relationships are almost completely, without exception, focused on Christ. In other words, my bonding agent, the glue in that relationship is not just that, you know, hey, let's go have some fun. Oh, I always have fun with this person. It's that I'm defying the devil with this person. We're standing shoulder to shoulder. And that's the way that I would say our relationship is even amongst the Ellerslie staff, is we're not as chummy as we are just battle-forged, and we love each other deeply, and we know each other well, and we understand each other at a, a very deep level, and we cherish that. But it's hard to describe, and that's why I'm giving this sort of start from drinking buddies. These other people out there have their drinking buddies. You know, as Christians, we go, well, I want a drinking buddy. No, technically, you probably don't, right? But what you want is a devil-defying buddy. And that's what we have here. We might be very different from each other. And, you know, for instance, if we tried to ally just on football, it might not work, right? Because you might like a different team than I, or I, I like baseball, you like football. That's a bad way to try and unite as the body of Christ. But we have a common hero. His name is Jesus. And we have a common foe, the devil. And we have common challenges amongst us. We have a common culture. We have a lot in common. And as a result, if you understand even what communion is, it's a common union. We are united in Christ together. And we are the same enemy as against all of us. We have the same vacuum at the bottom of our cage. 
And so instead of pecking each other, God has commanded us to love one another. Introducing the house of grace, also known as the house of seven rooms. So 2 Peter 1 is going to walk through what, there's a lot of different names for this throughout Christian history, but the seven graces is one of them. But what you're going to see is that add to your faith virtue, and then add to virtue knowledge. That whole flow, there's seven things that are being commissioned by Peter via the Holy Spirit that we are to add to our faith. And so you turn from your wicked ways. You turn from believing that you can save yourself or that you have another Savior outside of Christ. You repent of that, and you believe in Jesus. It establishes you in something known as the faith. You are now in Christ. But you are supposed to actively add to this. This is the house. This is the house that is meant to be the dwelling place of the Most High God. So the Holy Spirit desires to move into this. But it's a construction process. And he desires this house to be built a very specific way to reflect the kingdom of heaven. So though you have faith, don't stop there. Add to your faith. And so if you wanted to look at it as a construction project, you start with this little uh, room right in the middle, like a living room. And then it's like, add to that a kitchen. Add to that a bathroom. Add to that a bedroom. You're adding things that are going to make it a livable house so that it can actually function for the purpose that it was originally given. But it's interesting that we are to add something, that we are to do something with this foundation that we have. So giving all diligence, add to your faith. Now, I I have the Greek words for these, and I'll I'll let you know what they are, just in case you don't know. But I, I just sometimes it's fun to not just give the English words, but to have the Greek words hang out there, and you're like, so I'm supposed to add? Arite? Well, how do I do that? Well, it's actually going to cause you to question what that is. But when it says virtue, you're just like, okay, I need to add virtue. None of us. Who even knows what that is? Are you supposed to add virtue to your faith? Well, what, what does that mean, right? But when you stick the Greek word up there, sometimes it causes you to refresh and to say, I probably should figure out what that is. Arite. And to arite, gnosis, and to gnosis, egretea, and to egretea, hupomone, and to hupomone, eusebia, and to eusebia, philadelphia, and to philadelphia, agape. All right, guys, you just found out how you're supposed to live your Christian life. And of course, if you don't know what those words mean, you're at a loss right now, right? So there's more to it. For if these things be in you, and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, but that he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Listen to this last line. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. That is a, an incredible statement of strength here. So these seven graces become very, very important. So let's just explore this house. My message isn't actually about the seven graces. There's one particular grace in and amidst the seven that I want to pull out. So erite, which is typically translated as virtue, it's, it's a grace. It's something that we need in our life. So add to this grace of faith, of believing, the grace of arite. It's the grace for overcoming sin and walking in triumph. Boy, could you imagine having your Christian life but not adding that to it? When, Especially when it's sitting on the table, God says, yeah, grab a little of that and a little of this, a little of that. Boy, I want that. I want that in my life. 
I think all of us should want that in our life. That's why Peter's saying, add that with all diligence to your faith. Gnosis, the grace for understanding truth and walking in faith. Egreteia, oh, gnosis is typically knowledge translated. Egreteia, self-control is the typical translation or, or temperance. The grace for guarding the soul from sin's encroachment and walking in self-control. Hupomone, typically translated patience. The grace for endurance, perseverance, and immovability. Hoop. That's not the right word there, hupomone. What do your notes say? Eusebia, okay. Eusebia is typically godliness, the grace for honorable action. And Philadelphia, the grace for people. That's the one I'm going to draw out today. And then agape, the grace for walking in all the graces and for revealing God's very nature and behavior always. So I don't know about you, but I want all of those graces. I want to, with all diligence, add this to my house. I want the full manifestation of what God intended the Christian life to be. So Philadelphia, I know that as Americans we're saying Philadelphia, but you know, we're learning a little Greek at the same time. Uh, you know, we can be Americans, but we can at least pronounce something correctly, at least for the service, right? Philadelphia. It's interesting because uh the that that first part, uh phila, uh is actually going to be uh this idea of affection and Kissing, I know, the word, the book Philemon, uh, if you've ever heard me teach on Philemon, the guy's name means Mr. Kissy Face or, you know, the guy that kisses. Isn't that interesting? And so we look at it, we don't typically translate it that way because this is like brotherly love. You don't use the word kiss, right? But this is like a brotherly affection, that, that idea of Delphia, the brotherhood. And so you have this idea of a brotherly affection or a brotherly kiss, it is a kiss amongst the body. It is deeply affectionate. We care for one another. It's a great word. So what is Philadelphia? It's the grace for people. You need a grace for all the relationships in your life, and technically you have been supplied it. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness. Don't leave this on the table. With all diligence, add this to your house. It's the grace for family. It's the grace for the church. It's the grace for dealing with the unlovely attributes in those you are called to love. You ever seen some unlovely attributes and someone God says, you need to love them. And like, well, but they're very unlovely. It's interesting. You know, it's a great test of our soul because oftentimes we'll dig in our own pockets and say, but God, I don't, I don't have a natural love for them. And God leans in and says, I didn't ask you to use a natural love. I asked you to use my love. It's there for you. Are you ready to take my love, allow me to shed it abroad in your heart so that you can now give that to others? This world doesn't need our love. They need God's love. And then five, the grace for showcasing love and relationship with those that are often unlovely. Philadelphia, typically translated brotherly love or brotherly kindness. Here, I'm going to give you just a basic definition of what it is. Washing the feet of the saints. Seeking the benefit of those who believe. Could you imagine if you woke up today and instead of thinking about your ills, your challenges, your trials, you thought about the body of Christ and you thought about how you could seek their benefit today. Have you ever had it in one of those moments in your life where you've, you, you sort of break through the cloud bank, the fog bank in your life, and you actually are thinking about someone else around you. Like, huh, so this must be what it's like. 
to actually have time to think about other people. When you're so swallowed up in your own challenge, you're useless to explore and to cultivate these things. And yet this is where God desires us to live 24-7. And you could say, but I can't do that. I agree. But he can in and through you. You see, this isn't something I'm asking you to muster. I'm saying God desires to do this in and through you, to turn you into a foot washer. Many of us spend far too much time washing our own feet. I've never, well, maybe I shouldn't say I've never, because maybe I have. You know that hot paraffin that you stick your feet in? Uh, I I don't know that I've ever done that. I I may have. There there could be, because it does have this vague uh, familiarity to me in my mind. But it does sound sort of girly uh, to do it, so I don't know that I want to say that I've done it, even if I had. But that's sort of what we're doing. It's like, where's the hot paraffin? Could you bring the hot paraffin over here? Uh, there. Oh, oh, yeah, that's what I needed. As opposed to building hot paraffin little bins and carrying around and saying, hey, stick your feet in this. It's going to be very helpful for you. No, 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 that's yours. No, I want to share it with you. We're like carrying around hot paraffin for everyone else. Laboring to see the body of Christ built strong. Carrying those sick with the palsy to the feet of Jesus. Do you remember those four that bore up the man sick with the palsy? They're obviously not thinking about themselves. What are they thinking about? The man sick with the palsy. Because the first time they run into the throng in Capernaum outside the house, there's this big pile of people there and they can't get through. What are they going to do? They just, most of us would just set them down. It's like, God, I did my part. Instead, they're going to climb up the roof and then they have to get through the roof. They break through the roof. They go to whatever links. This is Philadelphia. Honoring others above yourself, seeking the profit of the saints, even if it means you go without. It means deep abiding affection for those considered brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Don't dig in your own pockets for this. It's not there. It's in the heavenly storehouse. You have access to it. You're a child of the Most High God. Come in. Enter into his throne room of grace where you may find grace for help in time of need. He has everything that you need. To, he supplied it to you in abundance so that you could love this way. Romans 12.10, be kindly affectioned one to another with Philadelphia, in honor preferring one another. So and it's, a, it's an odd thought to think of actually considering others as more important than yourself. We live in a culture that... When you are given a position above someone, you consider yourself more important than the person you're above. Isn't that just how it works? Think about it in a family structure. Whoever's oldest in the family has more preference. Okay, they, they get the greater honor because they're the oldest. But what if the oldest member of the family actually sought to treat all those that are younger than them as if they were more important? What happens if all of us bend our knee and become the servant instead of the one that needs to be served? What takes place? It's called the kingdom of heaven because the very chief captain of our salvation, the one who is, whose name is above all other names, took the lowest place and washed our feet. I was going to say in hot paraffin uh, wax, but I don't, I don't think that's exactly uh, accurate, right? But he washed our feet. He's the one that gave up all he had and showed this form of agape love in and through Philadelphia. The action of the grace for people that he showed is, is magnificent. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, 
But as touching Philadelphia, you need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. If you ever, when you come across statements like that, don't you always feel in the modern church, it's like, no, I think we might need to talk about it a little. I'm not exactly sure that we have been taught of God about this. I think it's a void. I think we're missing something. Hebrews 13.1, let Philadelphia continue. 1 Peter 1.22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere Philadelphia, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So a little biographical sketch here. Eric, a man in need of grace, a quick study in the life of yours truly. So the guy that is talking to you is very good naturally with people. And as a result, it was very difficult for me to acknowledge and come to the place that I can't do this. Very interesting. I mean, all of us have deficiencies, deficit points. We have places of strength. And where you have a strength, you know, it sounds great on paper to have a strength, but oftentimes those strengths, when you come into the kingdom of heaven, can be a true liability to your soul. And so I have had to walk through this where God had to bring me to the end of myself. And that's an important thing for every single one of us to get through. And sometimes I think, isn't there a fast forward button in the kingdom of heaven that I could just go through that a lot faster? Why do I have to go through this, 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 and this to get there? So Eric, the people-loving machine. Who needs grace for dealing with people when you are Eric Ludi? I Quick uh, biographical statement. I mean, I was voted homecoming king in high school and in college. I'm Mr. Likeable. And then I become a Christian. And I'm called to share Jesus. And it's like, why can't I just draw on my... Obviously, God chose me because I'm a people-loving machine, right? And oh, oh I got you, God. Okay, I, I, I see. You, you needed someone like me. And so God had to thoroughly break me to the point where all of my people-loving, which was probably more like, hey, look at me, loving, than it was anything else, big smile, you know, friends with everyone, and I really liked the attention, and God had to touch that, and he had to break me to the point where, as in this next slide, you'll understand, as I entered into ministry, and I was surrounded by people, and not all of these people were very lovely, and the way they treated me was not very lovely. They weren't voting me homecoming king once I gave my life radically to Jesus. No more of that. I was suddenly not popular. And suddenly I had a whole bunch of things being written about me that weren't very nice. And I was really struggling. And to the point that I had so broken down, so burned out with people that I wanted to find a career that had nothing to do with people. I could still deal with dogs. I was fine with dogs. But I don't want to have anything to do with people. People mean pain. They mean hurt. There's nothing good there. And so I, I know, if any of you know me, it's like, Eric, is that you? This was me. So Eric the farmer, I know, uh, that's almost as ridiculous. Just putting it on the screen feels awkward because some of you are like, Eric, do you know anything about farming? Technically, everything I ever plant dies, okay? I am, uh, whatever green thumb is, my mom is really good. She has a green thumb, but it didn't like uh, get inherited. And so, but I have a granddad. Well, I actually have two granddads that were farmers. Uh, one became a farmer later in life because he had land, uh, and he hired other people to do it. So I don't know if I should call him a farmer. But then my other granddad, uh, my mom's uh, dad, was a potato farmer in Idaho. You know, the classic picture. Big, huge, hulking man. And so 
in the family, there's property, right? Like we have property, like farming properties. So I was like laying in bed at night and I was picturing like proposing to my grandpa how I could, you know, he could teach me something before he died about farming. Because I, here was my mindset. Farming, I can't get hurt in farming by people. If I'm a farmer, no one cares about a farmer. No one's taking pot shots at a farmer. No one's writing blogs about a farmer. I want to be a farmer. I just want to be a farmer. I want to get away from people. I could be like with a plow and some seed. Seed can't talk back to you. And so this is literally, I mean, I dreamt I had a whole, you know, homestead figured out in my head. My entire motivation was to get away from people. Because who needs grace for dealing with people if you just become a potato farmer? You see, God had to show me that in and of myself, I didn't have what I needed. But the answer isn't to escape, it's to actually receive from him what I do need. I need grace for dealing with people. Eric, the sword-swinging husband, who needs grace for marriage when you already have grace for marriage? So my entire love story is supernatural. It was amazing. And I've oftentimes said it's the greatest love story of all time. And then we have people in the crowd like Philip that want to argue with that and, you know, act like his was better. Uh, but, you know, that's a side, side statement. However, it was supernatural and there was grace and I had grace and I was always uh, the soft guy, you know. So in, in the very beginning of my marriage, I was the guy that would like bring flowers, write love notes, you know, and there, there were other men that would, you know, be a little upset because their wives would be like, do you see that? That's exactly what I want from you. And, but I wasn't really the strong protector type. You know, Leslie would mention, you know, so-and-so always locks the door before he goes to bed. And I'm thinking, oh, we're protected. And I wasn't as thoughtful in regards to certain strong elements of protectiveness and standing up. So I'm going to go through a transformation somewhere along the line in my marriage. And it was right near the time Ellerslie was starting, in fact, where I suddenly started preaching. Like there was something stirring in me. A lava pool opened up and I was just, you know, so passionate. And the authority of the word of God was just like, you know, moving inside of me. And so I would come home and I had a sword unsheathed as I walked into the house. And Leslie says something like, I'm just feeling a little anxiety. Anxiety in my home? And I, I was a sword-swinging husband all of a sudden. I went from writing love sonnets and love songs and poetry and, you know, roses and, you know, all that type of stuff to suddenly, you know, having a blazing sword. And I recognized that, you know, I had grace and I needed more. <laughs> you see, sometimes as God moves in your life, you need to have grace, sometimes, always, to actually even harness that which he's doing. And so even though I had something that God was doing inside of me, I needed grace to harness it and to temper it so that it actually benefited my wife and my marriage and my family instead of harmed it. Isn't that interesting that God's movement in my life actually could harm my marriage? How could that work? Well, that was what God had to teach me too, is that even though I've had grace for marriage, I still need grace for marriage. And so it doesn't matter what you've had so far in your life. Guess what? Today, you need more of it. It's an ever constant need. A brook, if it dries up, is going to cause all sorts of problems in that area of the, of the country. 
That water that's coming through feeds so much, it, it nourishes the soil, everything. And so you don't want that brook of grace to dry up, even though it's been there in the past. The purposeful shortfall of grace, when God must remind us that we can't do this on our own. So if there's a truth that I know well, it's that one. Okay, I've taught it so many times. Isn't it funny that I don't forget that two plus two equals four? But I can actually forget, even though it's not like I forget, forget, where if you asked me, I would say, oh, what's that? Oh, I don't remember that. Oh, I would remember it. It's just that I forget it in my function. That one part of your life where you're living, you forget that you can't do it. And so sometimes, and this is my, my story, and I, I just think it's a very real thing probably for many of us, that God needs to do whatever it takes to continually remind us and refresh us in the fact that we can't do this without him. I've had multiple situations in my life where I feel like the grace of God is lifted for like a minute or two in my life. And I know this is going to sound strange, but I feel very human when that happens. One time I was in the Boston airport, just taking my luggage through, and suddenly I felt like the grace of God was lifted from my life. And it was the weirdest feeling. I felt like vulnerable to everything that everyone else is vulnerable to. And then I was praying, God, Lord, what, what have I done? Is there any, you know, and I, I, I felt it. It was so real because I didn't recognize that the grace of God was always there with me until God sort of lifted it. And then after a couple minutes, it was back. It's like, God, don't do that again. One time I was on the phone on an interview type of call. I was pacing in front of a window. The same thing happened. It's, it's weird. I remember these moments so vividly because I oftentimes forget that my daily life is full of grace, that I have something that the guy down the street doesn't have and that I should never take it for granted. And not just that, not just not take it for granted, but that I need an ever-increasing measure for the calling that I have. And so that dependence upon his grace, instead of saying, okay, God, I think I've got this figured out now. Jesus is our Philadelphia, the all-important reminder to our souls. 1 John 4, 12, if we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. His love is perfected in us. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. So who makes you increase and abound in love one toward another? The Lord. And toward all men, even as we do toward you. 1 John 3.14-16, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Isn't that interesting that John is actually going to say that this is one of the evidences to your soul that there is a supernatural working of transformation in you and that you're in the kingdom of light because you love the brethren. Not a, it's an odd statement, but it's, it's a truth. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. First, or John 13. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. The Philadelphian, the, oh, I should say it correctly, the Philadelphian uh, barricade. 
So I'm going to describe seven different javelins. Like if we were to do seven graces, like these houses, if you have these rooms in your house, these seven graces, you're not going to fall. You're going to be stout and strong for all things. But there's also, I'm going to call them seven javelins. There's things that the enemy tries to introduce to our soul that we have grace to fight against, but we need to remember that. When we allow these things in, they deteriorate and undermine our strength in our relationships. So I'm going to say, aware of the seven javelins of the old man that kill affection and intimacy. So this would be true for a marriage. This would be true for family relationships. This would be true for a church. This would be true for a business. It's just the truth. Javelin number one, grievance, unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment. Oh, that's a doozy. And a lot of students that come to Ellerslie, it's an unseen thing in their soul. But oftentimes it leads to a deadness in heart and affection. It's interesting. If you have unforgiveness in your life, and if I were to ask you, so do you love God? You would say in your, you know, your answer would be, yes, of course I do. But do you have affection for God? No. It's weird. But unforgiveness, bitterness, grievance, resentment, they seem to dull that affection dimension of your life, even towards God, even though your grievance is against someone else. It messes with your ability to feel affection. And as a result, this is something that we ought not to allow into our life, especially since God has given us a cure for it. His shed blood, he has forgiven us so that we can forgive others. And so as a result, to agree with God is to actually awaken affection. Javelin number two, accusation. Criticism implied responsibility for a problem, fault finding. Boy, when that comes your way, it's hard. When you're dishing it out, that's not good. Uh, The accuser of the brethren. That's the devil's business. That's not something we should be participating in. However, in a family environment, uh, that can linger in the air a little. If it's in the church, it stands out. It's like, oh, can you believe that? But we oftentimes put up with it at the family level and don't even think anything of it. Javelin number three, irritation and frustration. Shortness of fuse. Uh, I, I, I would say that I have had some good experience in number three, javelin number three. And I'm not proud to say it, but I have had some good experience in irritation and frustration over the years. Javelin number four, anxiety. Words to strike fear, evil words of foreboding and doom. We oftentimes will allow those to circulate. Like, for instance, one of the ways that a lot of men uh, handle their wives' spending habits is to make statements of doom. Uh, they'll make statements like, we'll be in the poorhouse if you keep spending like that. What's funny is they don't even have poorhouses anymore, but we'll still say it, right? And yet that's an improper way to cultivate affection because what that anxiety that can oftentimes come upon the woman, when you try and control someone through manipulation of anxiety and fear, that's how the devil does it. That's not how God does it. And so as a result, these things hinder and impair relationships. Javelin number five, overstatements, extreme statements, words like always, never, and the like. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is be married for one month, and I think the, the, the extreme statements can start to come out. We have to be very watchful of these things. These are javelins that actually bring harm to a relationship. Javelin number six, anger, slights, diminishment, harsh or hurtful words. Javelin number seven, threats of leaving or abandonment, threats of harm, threats of exposure of secrets. I'll tell them if you don't do this. Okay, these are very unhealthy habits. Everything that we just walked through is not the behavior of the kingdom of heaven. God gives us grace, 
to behave in a completely different way. So the secret weapons of Philadelphia. You'll notice in your notes that I have gentleness in there and I don't have understanding. So sorry about that, guys. You'll need to add in. I, I wanted to put two in. Right after I turned in the notes, I thought of this and then I got busy and I forgot to uh, send it over to Sandy. But gentleness and understanding. Let's first break down gentleness. Because when you think of gentleness, it just sounds like softness and mushiness. And yet gentleness is the behavior of Jesus. The Greek word is proates. And my most simple way of describing it is the opposite spirit. So if the world comes in harshness, we respond in an opposite way. If it comes in hate, we respond in love. We're responding in a very different manner. That's gentleness. So it's softness when struck with hardness. It's mildness when hit with harshness. And a gentle word when belted with a spiteful word. Gentleness is divine control and governance over the inner man, holding the flesh in check that it not be given voice or strength in the matter. And gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, which means when the Holy Spirit is given access to your life, he will cultivate this. He will give you a divine governance over your behavior so that you are not ruled in your relating with one another. So even though someone spits in your face, you have something inside of you that can respond as Christ would respond. Ephesians 4.3, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this is Ephesians 4. Ephesians 1 through 3 are very, very important to understand Ephesians 4. Because when you hear that, you could say, okay, that's what I'm going to try and do then. And you try and do it in your own strength. But Ephesians 1 through 3 are showing you how it is done. It is done by his power, his ability, his life within you. Now, I therefore... In having that power, in having that grace, in having that might within my being, I'm going to live this way. So for each of us, I could just focus on how you're supposed to live and make you feel really bad. Be like, oh, yeah, I, need, I really need to do that. That's a good point, Eric. Or I could say, we need Jesus, and we need to freshly declare that in our own soul. I want my marriage to shine. I want my family to be the happiest family on earth. I want this church to be the happiest church on earth, the most radiant and most robust for the king. What do we all need for that to happen? We don't just need a good preacher. We need God Almighty working in us. I could read every book on parenting. I could write a book on, on fatherhood. That doesn't make me a good father. If I think I can do it in my own strength, I can have all the truths. Just like if you look at Chinese proverbs, they're very wise and they're very good. That doesn't mean they have the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, there is a way that we are called to live which is beyond human wisdom and knowledge and insight. It is divine power from on high that must enter this body and make this body, this tongue, these eyes, this, uh, these ears, this heart, these hands function differently than they would apart from them with gentleness, and as I'm going to say, and understanding. But let's go through some more scriptures on gentleness. Titus 3.2, speak evil of no one. Could you imagine if we actually listened to scripture on that one and adopted that from this point forward in our life? When it says no one, I have a hunch if Nathan Johnson was giving this message, he'd say, you know what no one means in the Greek? No one. You know what that would include? That would include people in the government. 
That would include people that are conspiring to destroy you right now because you are a Christian. Speak evil of no one. Whoa! Be peaceable, gentle, showing all gentleness, proates, to all men. We show the opposite of what the world is dishing out, always. You have been given grace for this. Do not excuse yourself from it because the times in which you live are especially difficult. Well, I mean, God couldn't have understood. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't referencing this whole COVID thing that's going on. I have a hunch he was including the COVID thing. In fact, the times back then were a lot more challenging than what we're living in right now. So we need to remember that we have been given grace to behave very different than the rest of the world. The rest of the world is going to behave with irritation, frustration, rancid attitudes, hatred, and unforgiveness and resentment. That's normal human. We don't function as the everyday human. We function as believers in Jesus Christ, transformed by the Holy Spirit to love a dying world that hates us. Philippians 4, 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Isn't it fascinating? Imagine that's the only scripture we had up on the, the screen all day. And we just went over it and over it and over it. Let your gentleness be known to all men. I mean, the first thought that goes into my head is, how do you do that? Well, if it's the opposite behavior, we have to allow God to begin to cultivate that. So you could think through some of the different pockets in your life where maybe you're responding incorrectly. Most of us don't need a lot of nudging to know where those are. You can think about a few relationships in your family. You ever have, have it in a family where you're, you're really good with this one person? And so that's the one you want to think, oh, I'm really good. I love that person so much. Uh, and then there's this other person in the family that sort of gets under your skin. I can't imagine that that happens in the Ludi family. I think we all just love each other completely and we have no issue, right? Uh, even though <clears throat> if we were to have some testimony time amongst the Ludis, we might find out that there's, you know, some moments of friction in there. And yet that's where God's grace applies, right there. It applies to those places of friction, not just to the places that are easy right now. We need grace for help in time of need. And this is our time of need. This is when we need it, right now, so that we can let our gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand, guys. This is imperative. So I said that there's two secret weapons to Philadelphia. One was gentleness, and the other is understanding. So let me give you a, a description of this. For those of you that uh, used to hear... Eric and Leslie speak around the world. I mean, it's funny because Brent and Carrie Cooper uh, used to host, uh, what were they called back then? Secrets to an Amazing Love Story? Or was it called Romance God's Way? Romance God, that's, well, you guys are dated. Uh, there's some serious gray hair on the sides of your head if, if that's what you hosted. So, but we used to have four secrets to an amazing love story. So it's interesting. Okay, so you want four secrets to an amazing love story. I'm not going to give you what the secrets are. I'll give you number three, the third secret. And it was called tenderness. And what's interesting is tenderness, as I, as I describe what understanding is, it's the exact way I used to describe tenderness. And so let me describe understanding for you, and you'll see how significant this is and how we function as believers in the church and in our marriages and in our families. Understanding, climbing out of your skin and into the skin of another person. Feeling what they feel seeing what they see, thinking what they think in order that you might more effectively serve them and help them. Well, that's hard work, especially if the person's sort of irritating. However, this is the great secret to elevating their life, to washing their feet, to giving them what they truly need in their soul. 
But to do it, there's a certain dying factor in this. Because what we oftentimes are thinking is, well, when they do that for me, then I'll think of doing that for them. Well, that, that's a terrible way of approaching it because that's not what Christ, could you imagine if Christ said that to us? When they die for me, then I'll think of coming down to this earth and dying for them. You see, if he demanded our perfection before he gave us his, we're lost. We take on the Christ behavior, which is, God, I'm willing to lay down my life even if they reject me. I'm willing to serve their highest interest even if they smack me in the face as a result. Because I do this for you. Because you did it for me. The reason we love one another is because in so doing, we are showing love to Christ. That is our motivation. So one of the best illustrations of this idea of understanding is in the context of marriage here in 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. So what we see is that prayers of a man, of a husband, can be hindered if he does not live with his wife in an understanding fashion. If he does not have understanding, and he treats her as if, hey, come on, what's your problem? You should know that. Oh, come on, why do you always struggle with that? Could you get over it? Hey, come on, I, you should forgive me for that. Hey, look, that's what the Bible says. Forgive. Get over it. I mean, classic man statements that I just went through, very in a nutshell right there. And yet, all of that, you circle all of that, and you say, okay, that man's going to be hindered in his life. That's not the function of grace. That's a normal, everyday man right there. We are not called to be normal, everyday husbands. We are called to be as Christ unto our wives. And all of us could say, well, pff, how do you expect me to do that? I just told you how. By his power, by his grace. You see, there is a great secret. As a believer, we have access to the throne room of grace. Come boldly in. Take it. But if you do not access it, if you do not go every day to that throne room and say, Lord, apart from you, I can't do this. You will start once again functioning in your own strength, and you will begin to see breakdown in your human relationships. And God will bring conviction, and he will hopefully turn your chin upward to say, you ready to have me do this in and through you? Yes, Lord. So this is where it starts. Let's do this well. Here's another scripture that goes with uh, that idea. Hebrews 13.3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Isn't that interesting? That's not just a husband and a wife thing, but that we're supposed to remember and pray for those that are imprisoned for the sake of their faith as if we're chained with them. That's like climbing out of your skin and getting into their skin and saying, what would this be like? What do they need right now? How can I minister to them? If I was in their situation, what would, mean, what would be meaningful to me? Could you imagine if we just started thinking that way? What would it be like if I was in their situation? And it's very easy in a time like this to say, well, I'm really glad I don't live here in the world. Boy, I'm really glad I live in Weld County, Colorado. However, not everyone does. And not everyone has the same ease or comfort that you may have. Are we willing to consider those that are in rougher, more challenging situations as if we are in that situation with them? And do whatever it takes to minister to them because we are the body of Christ. And that's what we've been given grace to do. The Philadelphian phalanx. Phalanx is a military structure of defense. When the church walks in all the graces. When the church walks in all the graces, 
The enemy can't get in. The enemy can't hamper us. The enemy can't hinder us. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. So this is excerpted from the Alaskan Park Service official website. No other animal has the defense method of musk oxen. When danger threatens, they do not run away. Musk oxen are known above all else for their clever defense against wolves or other predators. When they see danger approaching, musk oxen run together and they all try to face the threat. If there is one predator, a lone wolf, for example, the defense strategy is to form a line. If a wolf pack surrounds the group, the musk oxen will form a tight circle, all facing outwards, forming a phalanx of heads and horns. Calves will hug next to their mothers or huddle inside the circle. Occasionally, one musk ox will charge the enemy, but will quickly rejoin the others. If the herd doesn't run, but stays together in a tight defensive formation, listen to this statement. I'm going to read it again. This is really powerful. If the herd doesn't run, but stays together in a tight defensive formation, their defense is virtually impenetrable. A musk ox caught away from the herd or separated from the others is much easier to kill. So those in the body of Christ right now that don't have anyone showing Philadelphia to them, that are not considering their situation and saying, how can I serve? How can I provide a defense for you? They're much easier to pick off. Body of Christ, it's hard to win someone to the Lord these days. Let's cherish the ones that are already won and let's care for the body of Christ. It's one of the chief attributes of our discipleship is that we love one another. So here's a picture of musk oxen in action. Uh, So you see the young calves, the vulnerable ones inside. You see all the other ones forming that phalanx of heads and horns. And you see them forming, I don't know, that, that other one on the right. I don't know if that's a line. It looks like I see the backs of some of them. So that may be a circle as well. Body of Christ, uh, right there. We're not the most attractive characters in the world. And we might smell a little. I've heard that musk oxen don't smell very good Uh, to the world. But to heaven, we have a beautiful fragrance. Uh, But this is something that is impenetrable. When we function as we ought to function, all of us in here, I want us to start in our marriages and in our families. I don't sense that this is a huge need just in the corporate body right now. It can be, and so we need this ready. But I say, let's allow God to touch us, to convict us, to empower us at the personal level, in our marriages, in our relationships with our children, if we're parents, in our relationships with our siblings, if we're a child, in our relationship with our parents, if we're a child. In other words, that there would be a great grace upon us that we would not just accept what we have, or the frustrations that come with growing up inside of a home, but we would elevate, allow the Spirit of God to elevate our life so that we would live as Christ would in that home. All right. Father, to do this, we need your power and your grace. And so we ask for that right now. We ask that you would demonstrate your life within us. Lord, apart from you, we can't do it. But with you, Nothing shall be impossible to us. Lord, we are expectant to see what you will do. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. 
Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.